Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 128 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Yo, 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 everybody. Ward Bell. It is I. John Papa. Hello. Lucas Rubelke. Holler. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick shout about uh, JS Remote Conf coming up in March. Um, so this week, um, let, let me back up. So so a few weeks ago, we did an episode about routing. And um, when we were talking about the router, I mean, I generally understood what routes were from some of my other work, but I've not actually ever used the Angular router. And it occurred to me that there were certain aspects of Angular that I wasn't very familiar with that I wanted to become more familiar with. And so um, I decided uh, over the next three months that I am going to figure out how to and build a single page app. And as I started building this, and just to give a little bit of context, I've been a Ruby on Rails developer for a long time. Um, I used Angular 1 mostly to enhance pages that already were being rendered by the server. So I would just pull it in and then, um, you know, I would set up the directives, you know, so that it would monitor some part of the page. And when I did stuff, it would do other stuff like uh, change the view when you filled in a form. So that it, you know, it would show, okay, thank you for your submission or something like that. Um, You know, uh, a little bit of data binding, but not a ton. And I realized that, yeah, there's a lot more to Angular than what I've done. And so um, I thought it might be interesting to just jump in and talk about, um, for those of us who have kind of used Angular as a server-side rendered app, page enhancement tool, how do you get all the way over to a single page app? Like, And I'm going to start from scratch, so I'm not going to be asking, okay, how do I upgrade this thing? But at the same time, you know, I'm trying to get a good handle now on um, sort of the ideas behind how do I build this single page app? So uh, I plan to use Rails, but Rails is just going to be an API backend at this point. Um, You know, I'll be doing some uh, probably uh, Java's JSON web token authentication stuff with it to make everything work that way. But, you know, I'm looking at it now and I'm starting to wonder, okay, um, how how deep do I go? Where, where do I start so that I'm not learning some of these things the hard way? And, and I know some of this is stuff that I have to learn the hard way. But, but the first question I have is that in, on, these, on these server-side rendered applications, a lot of times I have some overarching layout that I have. And then from there, it kind of boils down to, okay, what am I putting in these parts of the layout? And so I'm wondering is just, just to start us off, first of all, um, for that layout piece, is that just a giant component or do I want to server side render even that bit or do I not even bother with that? Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. Wow, you are where a lot of people are, Chuck. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, hey, Chuck, on a bell curve, you're right in there. Okay, got it. Congratulations. So you're, you, I mean, as a Ruby developer, uh, you're used to guiding the entire application experience from the server. You're composing yes. things, and the user sits there and types in a box and then clicks something, and it sends something back to the server, and the server says, oh, I know what you should be doing now, and builds a brand new page for them mm-hmm. and sends it over the wires. That approximately... But probably it- only sends the pieces that have changed because the server's smart enough to do that nowadays. 
Yeah, I don't generally. Know. Ra- Rails has generally, turbo links. Rails and, like that. Yeah, so you can you can just replace the part of the and, page that you need to. Yeah, yeah. even ASP.NET's been doing that for years yeah. and years and years. Yep. Right. But when I do like routing, like if I had, do I do I do routing with them in my application? So like I go from uh, talking about heroes to talking about villains, and I've got a link there, and I click it. What happens? Does the whole page refresh, or yes. do you the whole swap page out a part of it? Or well, you can do it either way. In Rails, you can do it either way. So right, but it's still the server's responsibility to send to do the that. new bit up. Yep. Right. And so depending on how, what my ability is and how long it takes to talk back and forth to the server is going to determine how, at least substantially determine how responsive it feels to me, right? Yes. So there's your motivation for saying, I, boy, I've heard about this spa thing. Uh, and it says it can make uh, it feel like all of those decisions are being made in the client. That sounds cool. Is that kind of the driver? That's part of it. Um, I mean, you're talking, for one, about the, the speed. The other thing is, is on, on mobile apps in particular, or mobile web pages, mobile-friendly web pages, if I make a request to the server for updates to a specific object, and I'm getting that back in JSON versus getting HTML layout and possibly you know, having to redraw, I guess you have to redraw a lot of that anyway, but uh, it, it uses less bandwidth, which is always a positive thing. Well, usually a positive thing. And then the other thing is, is that I feel like it can update more quickly because it's only really updating the, the more granular bits um, of, of what I need to change because it's going to be driven by the data that's changed and that particular component um, as opposed to, you know, just kind of blocking out huge parts of the page and saying, well, I probably need to update this one. Sure. And it probably is, it, it has a chance of being more resilient in the face of what always happens to us as we wander around with our phones. Namely, we lost the connection temporarily. Yep. The, the mm-hmm. other, yeah. So, so, I mean, those are, those are kind of the big wins. It, it's not just a traffic thing though. If I can maintain the state of my application without having to reload entire parts or the entire page, and rely on the DOM or, you know, some fancy munging with um, with JavaScript to keep track of that, then that'll yeah. also be nice. Yeah, I'll according give you to, Go ahead, John. Go ahead, uh, John. According to DHH, this is heresy, Chuck. I know. I don't care. Wow. That is a good... That's a step in the right direction. Um, so here's another thought, too, uh, Chuck. It may have occurred to you that... Um, Sorry, you Ward... Were you saying that heresy, DHH heresy is a, bit, a step in the right direction? Is that what, That's what I got out of your statement. You got it right. And he can come on over to my house and, and we, can, we can duke it out. If he Go out by the flagpole? Yeah, yeah. Because I got to actually, if he thinks he's got a pyre for me, I got a pyre for him and stakes and, and everything. Um, I think there's another win, Chuck, and maybe you kind of mentioned this to mention, like, to lay out there, and that is you don't get the flashes of content that's disappearing. So it just, yeah. it seems more fluid to the user, right? Uh, and server-side rendering, you know, is usually smart enough other than the, like I click a link and the whole page refreshes, right? Usually smart enough to do a better job at that, but still the, the spa makes things make a bit more sense. And also I feel like moving the logic to the client makes me feel like the logic's where it belongs, right? Yeah, there, just, there's a certain aspect to that. The other thing is, is that since the data and the logic and everything else is being managed in the same place, then or in the same place as the transitions, 
which is, I think, what you're trying to say, Joe, a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it can all happen as it needs to happen because it's all being managed by the same system instead of waiting for the backend system to go, oh, here you go, and then have the browser go, uh, okay, I'm going to kind of just chunk it in there. So sorry to cut you off, Ward. No, I mean, it plays right on that thought also, because as you think about how great, you know, what a great experience on the client side is, particularly as you're moving around from one thing to another, you know, like you go from point A to point B and then you go back to A again, you kind of hope A looked like it did when you were visited the last time, right? There's this sort of, uh, that's what makes for a good experience. It's not supposed to suddenly be like forget everything it was it looked like back when you were on A but in order to do that that takes a lot of state remembering a lot of state of all everything you've been to and what it looked like and all that stuff and servers are supposed to be stateless also Ward isn't state bad we should be completely stateless and immu- use immutable yeah. data and reactive paradigm right yeah come uh, on I'd like over. to hear you talk about come that come on over <laughs> I got a I got a knuckle sandwich for you uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, these are reasons, uh, you know, just to refresh our memory about why Chuck might be interested in this paradigm. So, Chuck, it's easy. Just go do it. What's the problem? Yeah, well, there are a lot of things that I'm used to doing on the server. And as I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this on the client? I'm, I'm just not sure where some of these things should live. And so, like well, I said, that, that layout, for example, you know, kind of the main overarching look and feel and arrangement of, of the uh, visually of the application. It's like, is that just one giant component that's kind of my, hey, here's the layout component or. And I'll bet that you probably are feeling some dissonance as well as you're doing these making these steps because you're saying I've got my entire server side technology that can do everything that I need it to do. And now I've got this client-side technology and it wants to do, apparently, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you probably feel some distance. Like, I feel be, I feel pulled towards doing this on the server side, but the client side apparently wants to handle this, and now what do I do? Yeah, well, the the whole challenge is to have as much of it managed by the client as possible. At least yeah. right Give in to the feelings. <laughs> yes. Surrender. You know, your resistance is futile. Just to I'm, change. Your f- I'm your father, Chuck. I'm trying to <laughs> change the movie reference here. Babylon 5 or something or whatever. Star Trek. I don't know. Star Trek. I was going to say, I, I think the purists just got angry. Anyway. Right. So, Chuck, when you're doing this in Ruby, when you build the whole application, do you build it in one big component or do you actually break it up? So you break it up, but it's it's model view controller, and so um, mm-hmm. the state management's managed by models. Um, there's a controller, which I think correlates mostly to a component, and then there's a view, which is essentially the template, which you'll also see kind of tossed onto the component in Angular. Bingo. Exactly. I think a lot of the paradigms that you are used to uh, probably have analogs over here in Angularland so that it shouldn't feel a totally strange thing. So um, you, the reason I asked was because you began by saying, do I just have one big component and and everything is in it on the Angular side? Well, I know you can nest components. Yeah, that's, that's, 
that's really the the secret that to um, keeping things manageable. So um, do you uh, in Ruby, do you have a do you sort of define a shell layout? Yes. Well, that's exactly what I would do on the client. How about you, Joe? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, you know, you'd have a header and a footer and a navigation area and you'd have a sort of a way you'd have a you start laying out the real Mm -hmm. estate, right? Right. But do I put that into some kind of HTML file or do I actually have a component that has that for its HTML layout? Well, in model view controller land, you would have a view that showed where those places were with HTML. And then you'd have some kind of smarts behind it that we call the code, the controller right. that, that knew how to populate those mm-hmm. places. Yep. Same thing. Same thing. So HTML uh, would lay that out. Now, the cool thing is that you're not using raw HTML to do it. So you're using what might be thought of as semantic HTML. So you act in, instead of saying, wow, I got to have this shell and I guess I got to put some HTML in here that says header, I create a header component. Right. I better, oh, I'm going to need some navigation area. I create a navigation component and it looks like a nav, ta- nav tag or a header tag or a footer tag or whatever. Um, but you're, com- you're constructing your own uh, semantic HTML. That makes sense. So then it's a divide and conquer situation. Um, and maybe you start around the edges of your shell with things like headers and footers just to get your feet under you because they're pretty uncomplicated. Um, and then you say, but I got this big square in the middle where the action takes place. Mm-hmm. And let's ask you, what would you do with a big square in the middle in Ruby? Same thing. I mean, you just have a... Uh you have a controller that fills that in and usually that is filled in more than anything else. Cause usually the header is the same or, you know, it has some variations on it, you know, based on um, your layout, but that big square in the middle is there's a route that routes to a controller that fills in that space. Yep. And that in angular world is the angular router. Yep. And so, um, again, you have this sort of, if you've seen it before one place, you may see it again here in the Angular world. So, yes, there's a router, and the router has routes, and those routes refer to components that effectively fill, you know, they go in the spot where you say they should go. Um, So, where's your next question? So, the next question I have is, um, I'm also fairly accustomed to having an overarching style sheet. And I know that you can put the styles on sort of the uh, the component that's further out. But do I want to put all of my basic styles into that component? Or do I actually want to have a CSS file that it pulls in somewhere with the base styles and then have the, the sort of... Um, more specific styles for the components on the components. I know my answer. How about you guys? Angular's uh, component specific styles are awesome. That's my answer. <laughs> do you have a glo- but do you have a global sheet, Joe? Yeah, usually. Yeah, I do Angular. too. I, uh, I'm usually I usually have a sort of a master style for the whole application, mm-hmm. right. and I pretty much you know I want everybody to be looking the same. 
And the way we've always done that is with a master sheet. So I, that's what I would do. John, you do that too, don't you? Well, I, th- I obviously I think about it first where I take things that I know I'm going to want across the entire app, like fonts and certain colors and themes, and I put those in a global style sheet. Uh, and then I really stop there and I, I follow kind of Yagni. I don't add things till I need them. And when I create components, uh, let's pause for an example. Let's say I create a component like a, a main menu. And that main menu, I start using those fonts and styles from the main style sheet. But in that component, I may want certain styles for, um, let's say it's a, a hyperlink. Well, maybe I didn't have that in my global style sheet. So I might first start by adding the hyperlink style to my component. But then I got to think about that and go, okay, is this hyperlink style specific to the menu component I'm creating? Or is it one that I want to apply to everything in my app? And that's really what drives my decision upon where I put them. If it's a style, like it's very conceivable that in a menu component, a hyperlink for an anchor tag might have a different set of styling than a hyperlink somewhere else in your app. So in that case, I might actually put that in the components CSS. But this is how I kind of go through that decision process. And I don't, I don't just throw them in the global all the time. And I don't just put them in the component. I actually make that decision on a case-by-case basis. And what's your, what's your criteria for that, John? It's exactly looking at, uh, like the example I said, it's, it's saying, okay, is this style I'm using right now only applicable in this particular case? And for, if I say yes, then further I say, okay, if I'm only going to use the style on this component, is this something that also, if I use this component somewhere else, I'd want to be able to conceivably uh, copy the folder where my component is and use it in another project or you know, more formally promote it? If the answer is yes, then... The third question becomes, so you're saying, John, that this component and this style are something that has to always go together. So if those things are all true, then I put it as part of the component. Uh, When I start saying, okay, I've created another, sometimes you make mistakes. I create another component and I say, okay, I now have another hyperlink in there. If that style turns out to be exactly the same as the one I created in another component, I then have to ask myself, Maybe this isn't going to be something that's component specific, and I should promote that to the global style sheet. So it really comes down to, is it application-wide, or is it component-specific? That's really the uh, criteria I use. So I guess my other question is, is what if it's not necessarily application-wide, or what if it's only used in a couple of child components of a component further up? Do you just put it on that component further up and just promote it until you get all the way to the top? So you're saying like if a parent component that has three child components and all three of those share, I don't know, H3 style being blue. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, uh, yeah, you could put it in that parent component and say, hey, you know what? Everybody under here is part of this thing. Uh, And realistically, if I was going to go that far, that parent component probably is something like it could be like a routable component. Mm -hmm. It could be in its own NG module if that's the way you want to go down that road, too. You don't have to. Uh, but yeah, if you've got a parent component that's got a bunch of children and you want those to share the same style, you could also put it there as well. I tend to lean towards the other extremes, though, meaning I try to put styles either in the component that's using it or back up at the root for the global of the entire app. I don't know why, but I guess I generally avoid putting them at that intermediate level like you suggested, just because it's harder to, to find, I guess. I confess I don't even know if put it, if you put it in the intermediate level, it works in the sense that whether it governs the nested components or not. 
I meant to look that up, but I have not ever, because I never have used the intermediate component strategy, I'm not, it's not certain to me that the styles you define for an intermediate component uh, actually are usable by nested components. Does anybody know? I know I've done it for a nested direct component where a parent has a child. What I haven't tried is doing it at the, okay, I've got a routable, like a root of a route, and it's got its own router outlet, and adding styles to that, and then if the other guy who you route to gets it. That I don't know. But again, I don't think it's very intuitive, right? So that's that's why I kind of either put it at the component level or I put it up at the root level. Well, that makes sense to me too, because essentially the way I see it is that the root component is going to be look, these are the styles, you know, these are the default styles or the styles in general that we're going to use. And then at each component, it would be, and here are the exceptions. But if you're putting, um, if, if, you're, if you're not putting it either on the leaves or at the very root, then you have to go look at everything in between in order to figure out where it is. Exactly. And it becomes a maintenance <laughs> issue in my mind. It does feel that way, doesn't that whole Russian dolls thing? Yeah. Yeah, and... and- I really look at it. It's, it's something I'd like to not correct, but adjust the way you said it is I agree. So if it's at the root, awesome. If it's something that is going to be an exception, yes, you put it at the leaf level, but I'd also put an addition. Most often it's not an exception. I put it at the leaf That's level. True. It's actually additional things. Yeah. It's a refinement like, is probably a better. Yeah. For it. There's just styles that I don't, they have no business being anywhere else in the app except on this component. So that's where I would put them. Yeah. The, the other thing that I like about that approach is that then um, yeah, the, the specific styles are closest to where the concern is and the general stuff doesn't become this giant cluttered CSS file that I now have to figure out where the thing is in the 5,000 lines that I've added in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also think it probably, you have to have in the back of your mind whether the application is ever going to be themed. Uh, you know, most enterprise apps aren't, but some apps um, particularly if they're commercial uh, facing or something like that, and you need to establish a, you know, uh, uh, maybe it's it's white boxed or something. You need a you need a theme and be able to change the theme um, depending on where it's being run, and that um, that would be really hard to do if you've got stuff all over the place. I think I don't know. I just haven't I haven't thought about theming in a long time. So one other it's question. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, saying it's something I think it's we don't we like to avoid things like saying it's uh, well, it depends, but it really does in this case. And it's something that I think we're trying to help people listening say, you know, you can't just say, well, Ward says do it this way or do that way. It's what we're really saying is you have to learn how to think these things through and at least understand what the consequences are of putting them everywhere versus just at one level. Yeah. But the thing that's also true is that everything we're saying here is a problem you faced in Ruby land. Oh, right? totally. So, so it's not harder. It's not, you know, you, you, and you have to give it just the same kind of thought that you gave it in Ruby land. Although you never faced it in Angular 1, right? No. I Angular really, 1, styles were everywhere. Yep. No matter where you put them. Yeah. There and, were no scoped styles or classes. Sorry. Go ahead, Chuck. No, I totally agree. And, and that's, that's part of where I'm looking at this now because a lot of this can be self-contained and I want it to be self-contained as as much as makes sense. And yeah, I just wasn't dealing with things on that level. I, I did some stuff that was kind of that way with directives in Angular 1, but not not very heavily at all. Yeah, most people didn't. So the, the other question I have related to CSS is that I want my applications to be mobile-friendly 
where it makes sense and to be desktop friendly where it makes sense. Um, and so, you know, I'm probably going to be putting some media queries and things like that in there. Um, do I, so do I wind up putting media queries both in the components and in the base style? Or is if that you need more? them, yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and I've done that, right? So you've got the base styles. If, it's, if it wants to be responsive, you're going to have your media queries down at the root of the application, of course. Right. Um, and somebody who would help you define those if you don't have CSS skills, et cetera. But the components themselves should also be responsive. It would be kind of weird to have like a, let's use a date control as an example. That's a component that would have styles that theoretically or realistically wouldn't be in the global part. So it's got its own style sheet. Those styles, if they're not responsive, uh, when you throw them into the main app that is responsive, it's going to look kind of weird, right? So I would assume that if you're going to be responsive, your company or wherever you work at should have a general theme on we're either responsive or we're not, and you just roll with it. So uh, the other thing that I'm wondering about, and I don't know, I mean, I mentioned uh, JSON Web Tokens as an authentication scheme just because it seems like that's kind of the way that things are done with these front-end frameworks. But to be perfectly honest, um, you know, I just made a request, it carried a cookie, pulled the session, and then the session told, you know, on the back end whether or not I could access something. Is it is it that simple as far as authentication authorization goes? You know, between yes and no. back-end and front-end? <laughs> exactly. It's as simple as it ever was. Yes. And no, and no, authentic, none of this stuff is ever as simple as we wish it was. Um, but, uh, but I don't think, uh, I'm not sure that I could say that spa changes the game at uh, much in this regard. There's a similar it, kind it of changes it a little bit, right? Cause you, you yeah. just have to think about, so everything you do in the server, you should still be doing, let's agree mm-hmm. there, right? Whether right. you're Ruby your Java, your JavaScript, whatever, but when you get to a client, right, and you're having to authenticate and you're doing spa, you now have to at least be aware that, you have to be more than aware, that you're running in the browser and you don't want to put anything into the browser that is something that would violate any company security policies or could be uh, intercepted, et cetera. Um, so if you're going to take, for example, JWT that the server generates, of course, and then is delivered to the client, the client only has so many ways that it could actually store it in the browser or access it in the browser. Uh, one of those is a cookie, and another one is you could use local storage. Now, there's a combination of the two. Uh, there's various ways to do this. But whatever you do, you also want to make sure, because it's in the browser, when you go back to the server, you have to sort of validate that that token hasn't been tampered with as well. Because anything can happen on the client. So that's the one difference that Spa brings into this is while the process, I agree with Ward, it's as complicated or as easy as it ever was. You have the additional um, responsibility to make sure that when that server receives some kind of a token to say I can do something or not, it should at least validate whence it came from and that the, that the format and everything else of it is still valid. Yep. I mean, the server's got to protect itself. Uh, I'm, 
I'm I'm betting that protecting yeah. itself is the same whether there had been a as soon as you open the door you know you've got to protect yourself. The other thing I think that's that's to keep in mind is that security on the client is for user experience. Yeah, right. It's secu- security yeah. on the server is for protection. Server is, <laughs> but you just have to assume that that the only thing you're doing by trying to make things secure on the client is just make sure that the user doesn't do something that ends up feeling bad because it's sure as heck isn't safe and you know something you can do chuck that actually goes on top of this and ward and i've discussed this a lot too regarding validation is a lot of people will ask this double question the first one will ask is hey i'm already doing validation in angular on the client do i really need to do it on the server and the answer is yeah you really should because you can bypass any javascript in the client right so if you want that code to be valid, you should do it on the server as well. Not just security, but like validating dates and emails and things like that. Uh, the other piece of that is a common way to, maybe it's not common, but there's a way to hack security these days is to input invalid data or malicious data inside of form fields that then look innocuous, but you know maybe they're inside the email field, they're actually putting runnable JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And on the server, if you have validation to make sure that's a valid email, they can't bypass that. Yeah. So that's a good thing to do. It's also worth noting that Angular does a pretty good job of preventing that kind of attack. Yes. We actually have a chapter about that, don't we? I believe there is. There's a guide about all the kinds of things that Angular puts in in there to make sure that you can't um, inject something into the template uh, that would be injurious along the lines that that John is talking about. Moreover, um, if you go down the uh, ahead of time compiler route, then what happens is now there's no not even a a template to be downloaded that could be manipulated um, because the templates are all part of the code itself. So uh, speaking to this a little bit, um, if something does fail the validation on the server, say it passes on the client and fails on the server because, you know, we're human and sometimes we, you know, we update the validation in one place and don't think about it in the other until it's like, oh, whoops. Um, yeah, how, how do I report that back? You know, do I just handle that in the service that is um, acting as the go-between between a component and the server? Hey, everybody. This is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, we just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out at jsremoteconf.com. Uh, you can also find it by going to devchat.tv conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there. Um, yeah, how, how do I report that back? You know, do I just handle that in the service that is um, acting as the go-between between a component and the server? Well, um, there's a school of thought that says the app should come down. <laughs> the app should crash. In other words, the server should reject it and the uh, client should say, wow, I should never have sent anything like that. I must really be wrong. Goodbye. There's a... So you simulate a 500 error? <laughs> well, you know, you get Oops. you got the five you got the you got a not a 500 because that's something that but you get an error back 400. from the 
the server that says, uh, man, you, you just sent me a request that's, that's invalid. It's not just like to nowhere. This is invalid. And then you have to decide what to do on the, on the client. And there is a school of thought that said, uh, bad, go, go away. Now, I take it by the laugh I heard out there. Somebody doesn't think that's the right answer. <laughs> No, I'm just well, laughing because you you talk about the school of thought. I want to know where this school is. I, I've never seen this one before. <laughs> <laughs> I think it depends a lot on resources and the desired user experience that you want. The whole crashing the app, that could potentially work fine when you're talking about an app that uh, has relatively small number of users, relatively low resources on the development side. And it's not likely to happen. And if it does happen occasionally, it's going to affect such a small number of people that it's acceptable, right? Um, totally cool if your online banking does it, right? <laughs> but in a more serious situation, especially, you know, what would be horrible is for somebody to counter the error where the client says, yes, this is valid. They feel it and it seems completely valid. And the server rejects it, but then crashes it, right? Now they have zero feedback. But to deal with that can actually be really problematic to have the server come back in a completely invalid for the client's consideration state, right? So a client sends off a, all right, now write this, and the client's potentially moved on, done the same thing on the client side, said, all right, we'll consider that this data is now valid, moved on, send it off to the server, and the server response comes back and says, sorry, this was, there was something wrong. You know, then you have to... Uh, it's still a matter of how much do you put into it. You might put into a, something's wrong. Please contact our, you know, uh, IT team with this reference number, or you might put in a whole bunch of effort to say, all right, here's the field that was wrong. Here's exactly what was wrong with it, and why, and can show you a fi- help you find a bug in your software. Well, the first one is is just the equivalent of. Um, uh, crashing and and you can put lipstick on the crash, but basically, uh, if it says you're toast and I don't know, I can't help you, um, then that's a crash whether it stays running or not. Uh, it, it's there's a I think there that school of thought actually has some sense to it um, because if you're if you're allowing something to go through and you can't anticipate on the client side what the error would be, then you should maybe you should come down, right? And, and let me give you an example. If if the client is sending a really sort of trivial one, let's say the server says uh, you you uh, you can't have a duplicate name. Well, we would write into our code, right? Our client that. Um, we should be able to recover from some effort for somebody to put in a username that's already been taken, right? That's just a, n- a normal anticipated thing. Well, and you, I, I don't know if you can conceivably check for that without sending an end run to the server one way or the exactly. other, right? Exactly. So you put it out there, but you're ready, you're, or you put it to something. Well, but, but actually, because of race conditions, you have to be ready for that one at any time. Even if you sort of, hey, does this, this looks available you know, maybe it's not available when you actually get to saving it, and then you got to be able to recover. So there's, but but you have to have designed your app to do that, and if you haven't, shame on you. Um, so there's the ones that you can catch, but the ones that you don't that come as a complete surprise, like um, you put in what you know, the client put in what he thought was a valid date, and now the server says nope. Um, then I don't know what the client app can do, but effectively crash it. So, um, 
because because the client didn't anticipate that ba- that that was bad data. So I don't know. I mean, there's there's something to that school of thought that says um, if you weren't prepared to handle it, then you should bring it down. And I and I think just sort of saying something went wrong. You know, the server said blah, 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 whatever stupid thing the servers say. Um, then I don't think you help the user at all. No, in fact, um, I I worked uh, support. That was my first job out of college. Actually, I was still in college when I got the job. But uh, yeah, I worked support for you know online backup software, and people would email in. I'm, now, for the desktop client, they kind of had to email in because it wasn't set up to let us know what the problem was, and it would give them this arcane error code, and so they'd email in and say, "I got this error code." Um, you know, on the web stuff, yeah, it's it's a little bit different because since they're directly interacting with the server, unless there's a problem in the client itself, yeah, you know, if the server's encountering the problem, the server should be able to log that and let you know about exactly. it. Exactly, exactly. The server should be sure to do that. Um, so, um, I don't know if we're answering your question, but I think the one thing that is true is the situation, I'm not sure how this situation differs from what you experienced as a Ruby developer. You still had you still had that separation of concerns between whatever your presentation layer was and whatever your server validation level was. And if something if the if whoever wrote and it could be you wrote the the presentation layer uh, submitted a request to the back what it was effectively the back end and it messed up, you had to figure out what to tell the user. Yeah, but that was a full reload, and so when it reloaded the the form again with the data populated in it now, it would just highlight the fields that didn't validate. Well, you can decide that that's what you yeah. want to do here, too, yep. right? I mean, if the server is giving you the information about what's invalid, I thought you were telling us that its server was just rejecting it you know, uh, whole cloth. But if, if the server is communicating validation information in a way in which the client can present that fact usefully, then you have, um, a perfectly good experience. Yeah. I'm just trying to think through the scenarios. Um, but I, I think, I think this answers most of the questions that I had and, and really it was just around, you know, how do I arrange these things and put them in the right place so that so that they do what, what I need them to do. And, and yeah, it makes sense that a lot of it is, you know, it correlates with what I've ar- already done in other systems. It's just the, the names of the layers are a little bit different and the APIs that I'm dealing with are a little bit different from what I've done in the past in Rails. So an area you didn't probe into is what, how, to, how to think about data uh, on the client. That's uh, true, but generally, I mean, my experience has been, you know, that I set up a service and, you know, I uh, sometimes I d- dependency inject something that does rest. And then it's just a matter of sending a request and getting a response and then properly handling the the response. But it didn't make any sense in the Ruby land to cache the data because you can't be that stateful. But in a in a spa, you have an opportunity to um, think about whether it makes sense to cache data on the client and whether you really need or when you need to make a request to the server. Um, that's that's uh, true. I, didn't, I hadn't really thought through that, but that, that, that makes a lot of sense because, 
yeah, why go to the server if my single page app already knows the answer? Like some things that are pretty obvious are things that are semi-permanent data. Mm-hmm. This is where Spock can really shine. Like the number of states in the United States probably isn't going to change. The number of, you know, your, your package codes, your supply codes, your, you know, the, the, the 101 reference lists that you've got that drive your application can all very comfortably be managed on the client and during a user session probably don't change that's pretty powerful yeah uh, that's a lot of there's a lot of data flow that doesn't have to happen there that does have to happen in a ruby uh, application where you have to keep retrieving that stuff presumably yeah one other thing that comes to mind is if i log into a single page app and say it's an app that runs like a I, I was talking to my dad earlier today, and so I always use the dental example <laughs> when I'm thinking about him because he's he's got his own dental practice. And, uh, yeah, so I load it up, and it knows that I'm probably going to be looking at the people coming in today and maybe tomorrow. And so, it, you know, it could load and cache that information so that the application's responsive and, you know, feels nice. Yeah. Yeah, that ability to kind of preload stuff in anticipation of what the user wants is another spa opportunity. And it's and Angular has those kinds of things, not just for data, but also well, it doesn't have it for data, but you can imagine doing it for data. Mm-hmm. But but one of the cool features in Angular is the ability to lazy load um parts of the UI so that they're ready to go. That that didn't even make sense in in Rubyland, presumably, but it makes a lot of sense in uh, in a single page app, and that's turning out to be pretty easy to do in Angular. Do you generally with that kind of thing? Because I keep hearing about uh, like RxJS and putting it all in a reactive store central place kind of thing. Is is that the way you approach that kind of thing, or is there a different approach that's uh, a, a default approach. You can, but I don't think there is, in my personal opinion, I don't think there is one way to do this, even though you're going to hear from people very opinionated versions of yes. what to do. I think you really should approach it the way you want. Like, you know, there's there's a reactive way. There's using tools like uh, Breeze.js. There's things like the, the Redux-like things or NGRX. Yeah. Um, there's also just roll your own as well. And sometimes, quite frankly, you don't need any of them. You can just kind of, your data model isn't that complicated and you can just write data uh, the way you need to do it. You know? You're talking about data now, John. I, I, had, I had mentally switched over to Angular modules and lazy loaded modules, but yes. Yeah, yeah. but, but I'm, I'm thinking data. Okay, and sorry, I got lost. I got lost. I was going to say, ooh, there's this cool thing, and it's so easy with a router to sort of lazy load or preload your modules, and oh, yeah, yeah. the thing launches, and you and you get just in time delivery of UI and all that other stuff, um, and that's cool. But if we're go- if we're back to data, yeah, then there's um, yeah, then there's roll your own. There's Breeze, and then there's the the whole set of NGRX type approaches. Is the, is there a preferred data storage mechanism and and what i mean by this is like um you have kind of the offline storage uh mechanisms out there is that where you put these to cache them or can you actually just write them to the browser cache and have it hold on to it so you're you're talking about between user sessions 
No, just just well, both between user Cause, sessions. Because while you're running, it's in usually in memory. In yeah. memory, yeah. so you just assign it to a variable. That's the usual way because most spas don't have an. And again, it varies, but most spas at any one time aren't carrying so much information um, that the user needs uh, that it can't be held in memory. Now, if you were talking about the entire company product catalog or something like that, then it could blow blow their local memory and you couldn't do that. But but most most spas in my world, in my experience, only need small, relatively small amounts of active data. And they can that can be held in memory. There are obvious exceptions to that, like you wouldn't necessarily download the entire product catalog, and uh, and uh, which could take up, you know, for a big company that could be a lot. But or or every order that had ever been done by the company, you wouldn't do that. But but holding most of what um, the the user intends to see in memory isn't usually a problem, and so holding it in memory makes sense. What 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 you may have been alluding to, though, is what do I do um, between user sessions? Can I launch the app and take advantage of the fact that some of the data is already here? Or can I hold on to my changes in a safe way in case the browser goes down and quickly mm-hmm. recover without losing them? And um, there are all kinds of cool strategies for that. Is that where you're going? Um, I was I was uh, initially asking about, yeah, just as I get data from the server and I want to store it somewhere so that I can just access it later. Um, I can just manage that with a variable within, you know, a cache variable essentially within my service. So yeah, just between sessions, you know, or yeah, in the case that the browser crashes or something like that, it would be nice for it to come back in the same state that it was left in. Yep. So there are techniques for that. As far as holding stuff in memory, you know, assuming that you have, that they have identity so you can find them again. Um, then caching them in memory with some mechanism is uh, a particularly, uh, yeah, that's well suited to, to what you want to do. And Breeze is really good at that. Breeze is also pretty good at hydrating your stuff into local uh, browser memory for between sessions. So um, Breeze, this is, this is where Breeze lives. Yep. We really, we really should have a follow-up show on, uh, Using Breeze with Angular 2. Sorry, Angular. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time we do it, it'll be Angular 12. But yes, I agree. I also think as other follow-up ideas, uh, we talked about security a little bit. Uh, there's a gentleman who's got a course uh, or two at Pluralsight on security, and he's really good at this stuff. His name's Brian Clark. I think he actually had a hand in writing some of the docs in Angular first, the security chapter. Uh, we should get him on the show and talk to him more about some of the security options and things that, like you mentioned, JWTs, Chuck. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other things that we should be paying attention to with security on the web that we may not be normally. And he's excellent at about reminding me all the time about those things. Yeah, he's got a he's got his head full of do's and don'ts. We should have him. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, are there other questions that I didn't even think about asking that I should be asking? Should you use Angular One? Can ask that question. Yeah. No. How about backbone? <laughs> no. Jquery. <laughs> no. Keep it coming. No, it's scriptaculous and prototype. All right. All right. You're <laughs> you're sifting through ES3. Come on. 
Um, there are certain kinds of apps that don't lend themselves to being spas. Yes, I mean, that 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 was another thing that I was because I, I was looking at example or different projects that I could do, and yeah, some of them made more sense than others for being spas. Uh, you know, I I I don't know what you what you all think. Does anybody want to opine on this besides me? So hmm. one one thing that I've no. run into is, for example, um, I've seen apps that have several different sections that are fairly well siloed. And so they're going to have the look and feel in common, but the rest of it just, you know, they, they don't necessarily need to be the same app. But then other apps or other, you know, systems, it seemed like they, they lent themselves much more to being a, a single page app. Yeah, um, and certainly it, it makes some sense to, to compartmentalize these things, not build one super um, uh, single-page app and, and have everything in it, but rather to make make uh, a number of small ones that are integrated at some level. Um, and But that's just good design anyway. I think there are certain kinds of things that, don't feel like you get a lot of benefit from, and, and that's where there's not a lot of benefit for, for to client side state. I have, for example, a, a hard time imagining how I would redo Google's um, search page as a single page app. I just don't know what that would buy me, right? Because yeah. um, I'm looking for something and I can't, uh, you know, what I looked for before and what I'm looking for now, you know, what's the, What's the reason? Uh, mostly, I'm just interested in having as much new information thrown my way as possible. So I don't see a lot of advantage there. I don't see a lot of advantage in a single page app in which there's not much user interaction. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, are games single page apps? I don't really know how. Maybe games are, but I don't know that I would use Angular to build a game. Has anybody thought about that? I, I haven't Joe? really looked into it. Joe, Joe, you're a gamer. Would you I'm build a gamer? But no, building games is <laughs> that's just something that gamers dream of, but never actually do. Yeah, um, I think that with data visualization is really cool, but I I have a feel uh, feeling that you would create us an island. Uh, at most, you would create create an island within your. Um, spa that was sort of it was like a hole in it somewhere and you do your data visualizations in there you wouldn't want to run through the whole framework every time you were doing something isn't that what we do when when people talk about using d3 with angular they they really mean they're going to carve out a, a chunk of real estate and and i think say so. that's yours d3 again i'm not super familiar with it but i would think so there was a what talk a at angular remote conf this last year and I think I think we were going to have him on, and then I don't think we ever got him rescheduled. But you know, he was doing virtual reality stuff, and was managing a lot of that with Angular. One of the objections had been SEO, search engine optimization, and I I I think that the story there has improved um, dramatically since we would first talk about that. Um, but I don't know, have, have anybody here, has anybody here done any work in which some portion of the spa needed to be, uh, searchable? So when I think about SEO, generally I'm thinking about content websites and that might be a bias because I'm a podcaster and blogger, 
as opposed to anything else. Um, most of the other single page apps I'm talking to people at, about or looking at, um, you usually have to sign in and then it gives you a nice way of managing data on the other end. And so you don't necessarily need or even want somebody to be able to search into there. And so, yeah, public, yeah, public sites, sometimes you do. Like I've written a few sites where with Angular 1 where we needed SEO to be very prominent. In fact, if SEO wasn't prominent, the site wouldn't have gone Angular 1. Uh, and with that, we used a product called pre-render. Mm-hmm. which you can get. There's open source version of it. There's also a pre-render IO, which is a software as a service. They offer like a cloud service. But you can get the free version, which is what I did. And you, what you basically do is when somebody searches your uh, site, they, uh, they send certain things. SEO sends certain tags effectively through the URLs. And then those URLs get routed to your pre-render server on the back end, which is actually pre-rendered all of your content. Uh, it looks for certain meta tags. There's all sorts of SEO configuration you can do for it. But effectively, they're not running the Angular then. They're running the pre-rendered HTML, which effectively allows them to search your site. And that's been a, a deal breaker on a few apps that I've written where that was absolutely essential. And I think Angular Universal, which I, I expect to have more attention given to that uh, in the coming months, will be targeting that, that problem. For, for Angular, for, for modern Angular. <clears throat> yeah, I, I definitely need to look deeper into that. I keep hearing the promise of being able to do that, but uh, I need to understand better how it's actually functioning to see uh, if it'll solve that problem for us or not. So but. my experience, at least recently, has been that Google's so good at running the JavaScript that SEO, <clears throat> you know, the need to pre-render has kind of gone away. I... My understanding is is that it's gone a long ways that way, but if you're if you're doing anything that's sort of non-standard, or right. you know, yeah, the, if you're being pretty funky, but like yeah. as a good example, yeah. the uh, the Angular Cruise, the ng Cruise site, is completely built with Angular one. Um, <clears throat> I think it's Angular two. Actually, I didn't build it. But it's completely built with <laughs> Angular. <laughs> I'm gonna say, <laughs> I'm sure it's built dear. with Angular two. I'm sure it is. Gerard Sands built it, so I'm sure it's built with Angular too. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> completely built with Angular, not server-side rendered at all, and I just, for fun, searched uh, the title of one of the talks, and boom, it's the first result that comes up on Google. So, yeah, SEO is, I think, less of an issue today than it used to be as far as dealing with client-side I think you're. I think you're right, Joe. It has come a long way, and I've had a lot of chats with the Googles and the the Baidu's and the other big search sites in the world, because um, there's others besides Google, believe it or not, right? <laughs> and these things have gotten better, but where they get difficult is, for example, imagine because I have nothing to do with this, so I can say it. Imagine you work with Amazon, and you sell one gajillion products on your site. Uh, to be able to search those and have the right ones pop up in SEO, the ones that you want to help pop up first and promote and deal with, uh, that kind of effort is something that's not uh, you can, something you can do easily with uh, just by letting your site be Angular and not doing any kind of pre-rendering. Uh, maybe Angular Universal will help with this. I don't know yet, but at least in the Angular One world with SEO, it's definitely if you have a serious uh, need to help SEO, it's something you need to pay attention to. But if you're building a site. Like um, like Joe's talking about here, I think you're probably fine by doing nothing. And so I will admit that I'm not an Angular uh, Universal expert, but 
when I went through and did some time reading around, what my understanding was the Angular Universal is ent- targeted entirely at reducing that initial page load. And so it actually renders out your first page for you, rendered from the server, and then it switches over to completely client-side render. So getting your entire site crawled, Angular Universal wouldn't affect that. I could be wrong. Well, that I, think was my that, I think the intention is that it, that, that is certainly a sweet spot for it. But my, my impression was that it was also supposed to be um, part of a, an overall rendering, you know, server-side rendering strategy that would allow you to um, do more than just the first page or, you know, selectively. For example, right. your product catalog or something like that. Right. Um, it, I'm reminded also of the fact that um, um, if you think about Angular documentation, um, that actually has a lot of Angular 1 in it today as we are speaking, but we'll have Angular 2. And um, uh, creating a content management site with Angular 2 is not something that is obvious how to do it certainly didn't seem to be the targeted scenario for um angular 2 um in part uh we know you know it was it's actually a lot easier to do in angular 1 because there is a separation in angular 1 um did i say angular 2 gosh i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm not supposed to do that <laughs> Dad Ward, Angular. Uh, <clears throat> um, All right, Ward. I think if you're going to say that, you're going to have to tell people why you're not supposed to say that. Well, we've been Otherwise, calling gonna it. Go, what are you talking about? We've been calling it <laughs> Angular two for what three years now. I know, and it won't come out of my mouth, and it yeah. won't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't keep it locked away. We're um, because the version doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's so true. That, it doesn't that is the there's most Angular true statement I've ever heard. There's Angular 1 and then there's Angular. Um, and <laughs> trying to uh, divert attention away from the version number because um, the version number shouldn't matter. Uh, and we also expect it to be on the move going forward. And that's as much as I'm going to say about that right now. <laughs> But um, but I have I was, a whole episode about this, please. <laughs> at the appropriate time. But the 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 thing is that, that I was talking about it as a content management site, and I get these questions, these, see these issues often, where people want to be able to project content that is generated on the server side into onto the screen in some way um, during that you know into the initial host page and things like that, and they want to they want to do what our documentation site does. And how would you do that in Angular 2 when the HTML template and the component are inseparable? That's the real trick. And we're going to have answers for that, but the show can't, um, can't cover that subject at this time. Um, but it's, we're going to have answers for that. And that will open up a, a new kind of app for, for Angular. But I would say at the moment, um, trying to write a content management site in Angular, in modern Angular, is not easy to do. In the Angular that isn't Angular 1. Correct. <laughs> yes, Angular not 1. Angular yeah. not, oh, I like it. Angular not 1. Wait, 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 Joe. I thought the winner of your poll that you did on the web was Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> if that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new name of the product? Yeah. Do you know the reference behind Bodie McBoatface? No, I don't. There was some company that was, uh, I think it was like a government entity, 
that was put on a pole for to name a new ship, uh, some like exploring ship, right? A scientific exploration vessel, and by far the number one vote was Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it was like Britain or something, but yeah, yeah, I think it was the British. It's just it just Google Bodie McBoatface. It's a hilarious story, and so yeah, I figured that would definitely be a top winner if we were to let people p- pick and. Choose the name for replacement name for Angular Two. Well, clearly, we're into picks already because that's going to be my pick. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure we have a link to the story there. <laughs> yeah, funny stuff. All right. Well, um, I am planning on releasing videos of me building this single page app and learning how this all works. So uh, keep an eye out for that. It'll probably come around. I'm trying to decide if I just want to post them to YouTube or if I want to make them part of the Rails Clip series. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, definitely Rails backend and Angular frontend um, on that. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Comp. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance and bringing in some of the experts from the Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at freelanceremotecomp.com. And yeah, let's go, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Ward, do you want to go first? Bodie McBoatface. That's my pick. <laughs> I'm grabbing it. <laughs> I'm grabbing it while it's available. That's my pick for today. Sweet. All right. Joe, what are your picks? All right. So... Um, I'm going to make two picks. One is my blog post about Angular 2 names. You should definitely check it out. Uh, get a, give yourself a little chuckle. Uh, you can find that on joeems.me. Um, so it's just J-O-E-E-A-M-E-S dot M-E. And that's like the most recent blog post. Little little blog post on the top 10 names for Angular. Little Little comedy to lighten your day. And then my other pick is going to be <clears throat> a movie that I saw this weekend. So... No, I am, you didn't see it again. No, 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 I didn't. I'm talking about a. I'm actually talking about a different movie. It's a movie that didn't have any lightsabers in it. Ward, you'll be happy. Wow, I'm, now I'm listening. <laughs> so, I am a Jackie Chan fan. I do like Jackie Chan and his work. He's made a lot of fun movies to watch. And he recently released this movie made in China, like most of his movies are. Not all of them, but most of his movies are made in China. So it's a Hong Kong movie. It's called Railroad Tigers, and it's set during, like, right before World War II, probably, during the uh, Japanese occupation of China. And it's basically about the small band of freedom fighters. But in Jackie Chan style, it's got a fair amount of comedy and sort of funny action to it. And it's called Railroad Tigers. It had an extremely limited release here in the U.S. It just came out last Friday. Nobody knows about it. I live in Utah. The nearest place that had a theater showing it was in Vegas. They have one theater in Vegas that's showing the the movie. So my wife and I and a couple of friends jumped in the car and made a road trip down to Vegas to go see a movie. And made the whole thing just even more fun. But it was a great movie. Really fun. If you are into his type of movies at all, you will definitely enjoy it. Hopefully it'll come out on streaming or something soon. Or 
maybe there's an off chance it'll be showing if you happen to live in a huge metropolitan area. Railroad Tigers, go check out the uh, the um, preview for it. It's it's really really awesome, and it was a great movie. Definitely lived up to how fun the preview makes it look. Even better, actually. So that's my picks. All right, John, what are your picks? You know, I think I heard they're going to do another Shanghai Noon sequel, actually. I don't know if Jackie Chan's going to be in it or not, but that'd be, uh, that'd be kind of cool to check out. I thought those were funny. So my picks. Uh, I recently, I think it was um, one of our Angular friends on the internet who pointed me to this, but it's like a virtual reality Chrome tabs plugin. Uh, it's called SVRF. So my pick is SVRF. It's a Chrome Tabs plugin. It's for discovering virtual reality. If you add this plugin, then when you open new Chrome Tags, you get this like 360 view of some kind of cool landscape, and you can actually zoom in, dive around, look all over the place. Uh, it's just kind of cool uh, to take a look at. And my second pick is at topcoders.io. It's a website that we're starting to set up. Uh, my friend Joe Eames here and myself and Dan Walleen. And we are going to be hosting a few uh, Angular and other types of workshops over the next year. Uh, the next of which will be in Raleigh, North Carolina, I believe. Sorry, I didn't understand the question I heard. <laughs> 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 Sweet. Thank you, Alexa. <laughs> we got to keep that in. I, I'm keeping that in. <laughs> Um, uh, hey, John, there's something, there's another thing that you should tell people about that you told me about. You showed it to me a while back, and I love it. And it's Octo, what's it called? Octo Tree? Uh, whatever. Octonauts? No, the one that that's <laughs> in, in, a plug, a Chrome plugin, or it's actually multiple browser plugin for oh, the GitHub sites. What's that called? And what's the? Octo Tree. Uh, yeah, OctoTree is a plugin for Chrome where it allows you to, when you're on a public GitHub site, uh, it detects that and it opens up like a left-hand side, like iframe type thing for a tree view, which allows you to dive into the structure of a GitHub page uh, and go right to a specific file. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, and you folks out there that are trying to get yourself around Angular itself, it's GitHub page. You're going to want this OctoTree thing. Um, to get around there and see where what's where. Very cool. Um, so John talked about VR there for a minute, and uh, there was just so much VR stuff at CES. Um, I got back from CES um, the night before last about 1 a.m. because uh, I just drove down to Las Vegas and back. So Joe and I were probably down there at the same time for different things. Um, and uh, Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Anyway, it, it was really, really amazing. Uh, there are a few things that I just want to talk about real quick that I uh, picked up there. One of them was um, I was reached out to by a phone charging battery company. It's called GoPuck. And um, what it is is it's just it's got this clip on it. And I wish I could kind of show everybody, but I can't. Um, anyway, it's a couple inches square. Um, it charged my battery all day long, walking around, um, listening to stuff part of the time as I just browsed to see if there was anything that I wanted to uh, explore more deeply and, um, you know, all day long. Um, and it was only half halfway empty or halfway full, depending on how you look at it, um, when I was done. And it, it has this clip that goes on it that clips onto your belt 
And so I just I had the thing clipped onto me you know, onto my belt just right behind my hip. Um, and uh, the only thing that was really inconvenient about it was the cord running from it into my pocket because um, the cord was much longer than it needed to be for that. But um, anyway, very, very convenient and kind of a cool uh, way of doing batteries. So I'm going to pick that. Um, and then one other thing I'm going to pick, you might, I don't, I don't know if I sound that different or not, but uh, I am using a new microphone today. Um, I figured out that there were some audio issues and I figured out those audio issues were because my high LPR 48 died a death. Um, it, I, I've had the mic for about six years, I think. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if my kids came in here and played with it or something, but anyway, it, it was dead. So I replaced it. I am now using an RE20. That's Electro Voice RE20. Um, very nice mic. And uh, I'm excited for it. Uh, there is definitely less noise on the line as I listen to it. And uh, it's working really well. So um, I'm, I'm liking that as well. And then my last pick, um, while I was at CES, and, and I, I've got tons of picks from CES, so you'll get them over the next few weeks. Um, there was a company right as you walked into the Sands Convention Center. And they were there last year, but they were kind of hidden at in the Sands Convention Center downstairs about halfway to the middle of the conference floor, which means you would never find them. Um, it, they're autonomous. Um, Autonomous.ai. Uh, and uh, anyway, they do standing desks. Um, they've got a couple different models you can choose from. Um, I just got their lowest end. It has one actuator in it, hold about 220 pounds. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they're only like uh, $299, I think, for the base model. And then <clears throat> if you want a system that has two actuators and will hold like 300 pounds, and you can, you know, you can drop 399. And then they also have systems that have other features in it. Like there's one that um, keeps track of your habits, and then you can hook it up with your phone and then it will actually be smart enough to stand you up or sit you down on whatever regular schedule you're usually on. So, um, and those are much more expensive, but anyway, um, so I actually have two of those desks coming my way. Um, I've kind of been on this cubicle <laughs> that my wife bought me several years ago for my office, but I'm going to be switching them out for sit stand desks that I can just push the button, go up, push the other button to go down. Um, and then it has some presets on it so that you can just, you know, um, so I can just set one to where I'm comfortable standing, the other to where I'm comfortable sitting and just kind of go from there. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to that as well. So, uh, yeah, those are my picks. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't think there's anything else or any other announcements. Um, Angular Remote Conf is far enough off to where I'm probably not going to talk about call for proposals or anything. Is there any news for ng-conf, Joe? Um, not this time. Okay. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up then. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. Peace.